I am delivering this series of messages on the Confession of 1967. It's called the New Confession of the United Presbyterian Church. And a great confessional church, which has had a, a wonderful history, is changing the foundations upon which it has been built. Changing the foundations upon which it has been built. And from now on, the great United Presbyterian Church will be a different church with a different purpose and a different message. As we move along, perhaps I can get in some of the details. I will toward the end as to how all this change developed. But I have thus far delivered three messages. One on the infallibility of Holy Scriptures, which has been the position of the church from the beginning, but which is no longer the position of the church under the new confession. And the major break, the major change, is in the fact that the church will lay aside the Bible as the infallible Word of God. That's the main basic change. Ordination vows have been changed. A lot of very interesting questions about these ordination vows. I wonder when they pass it out there next month and they've got a new ordination vow, they're going to make all the old preachers get up and take the new vows. How are they going to implement this thing? It's going to be very interesting to see how they make this transition from the old system with the old vows to the new system with the new vows. These are interesting things that we'll see how they handle. But we're all aware of the fact that they now tell us that the Bible is the words of men. It says it in the Creed, and if you have your little book, did any of you bring your books back with you tonight? Most of you brought them back with you, and I'm very happy that you've done so. But the confession, the new confession, is in the appendix and on page 186, we read, The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of men. Of course, that's not true at all. Given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they are therefore the words of God. And then they say in the New Confession, conditioned by the language, thought forms, and literary fashions, of the places and times at which they were written. They weren't conditioned by any such thing. They were conditioned by the fact that the Holy Spirit revealed unto the, the prophets and the apostles what he wanted them to know. And Jesus Christ said, if I tell you earthly things and you don't believe me, how will you believe me if I tell you of heavenly things? And he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Now, if you don't want to believe it, you just won't believe my word. But they're there just the same. The first great basic change is that they are laying aside the Bible as the infallible Word of God. And you and I as Bible Presbyterians and how God led us in taking that word Bible in our title, we'll thank him as long as we live because we still believe this Bible to be the infallible Word of God. The 20th century hasn't changed the Bible. The Bible will never change from being what it is, a revelation from God through his Spirit by the prophet Moses, 
David, Daniel, name them, and by the apostles, Matthew, John, Peter, Paul, name them. This is the Word of God. The second message we delivered was on Jesus Christ. And we sought to show you that they have put the great emphasis upon Jesus Christ, and they've sought to separate the Christ of the new confession from the Bible. They have separated him from the Bible. This Bible is no longer the infallible word. It has errors in it. It has mistakes. We're separating Christ from that Bible. And then we have this Christ out here that they have brought into being. And they were careful, as I pointed out to you last Sunday night, to make him a sinner. While the Christ of the Bible is without sin. They were careful when they reconstructed this Christ of the new confession not to make any reference to the nature of his birth, that is, that he was born of a virgin. They left all that out. But the Christ of the Bible, the Christ of Revelation, was virgin-born, born of Mary, a virgin, and born of her, yet without sin. And the Christ of the new confession is a modern Christ, whom they have reconstructed to take care of the work that they think the church ought to do today. And that work, as we shall move through these messages, deals primarily not with the salvation of precious souls. They have no message to save anybody's soul anymore. But that message deals with the changing of society, the changing of the social structure, the bringing in of revolutionary social programs, bringing them to pass. And what we have here is a different Christ from the Christ of the Scripture. And ladies and gentlemen, beloved tonight, they can have their Christ. He'll never help. He'll never take them to heaven. He'll never forgive their sin. Now this comes to where we are tonight, the cross. And I want to show you on the basis of the scripture, on the basis of this new confession, just what they have done with the cross of Christ. And next Sunday night, the Lord willing, after we've dealt with the Bible, and after we've dealt with Jesus Christ, and after we've dealt with the cross, we must turn now and watch them as they take the church and lift it up and lift it up and lift it up and keep on lifting it up until the church becomes the power and the authority and the glory. And they make a transition from the Bible and from Christ and from the cross over into the realm where the church now becomes the all-encompassing and all-powerful agency which they're going to use to bring to pass the new great social system. And next Sunday evening, we'll get into the church, and I want you to see what the church is according to divine appointment and how it is a divinely ordained institution to minister the Word of God, to proclaim the Word of God, and that the church was never, never intended to be turned into some sort of an instrument which would be the desire and the aid of political powers. 
and we will get into that great subject next Sunday night when it comes to the church of Christ. As we turn now to look at the cross, I want you to read this paragraph that's in the Confession on Christ. It's the second paragraph on page 181. God's reconciling act in Jesus Christ is a mystery. God's reconciling act in Jesus Christ is a mystery which the scriptures describe in various ways. It is called the sacrifice of a lamb, a shepherd's life given for his sheep, atonement by a priest. Again, it is ransom of a slave, payment of debt, vicarious satisfaction of a legal penalty, and victory over the powers of evil. These are expressions of a truth which remains beyond the reach of all theory in the depths of God's love for man. Now, beloved, there are three things about that. The ordinary man might see it, and that's my problem. That's our trouble today. The ordinary person doesn't see it, but the minute I point it out to you, you do see it. First, they say this reconciling act, which is this cross, is a mystery. It is not a mystery to the believer. Second, they say that this reconciling act has been expressed in these various words of Scripture, but they are in the area of theory, in the realm of theories and it's impossible by these theories to get at the truth which somewhere or other is hidden way, way, way up there in the love of God somewhere. And so what they do first is to relegate this cross to the realm of mystery. Second, they put the statements concerning the cross in the scripture in the realm of theory. And thirdly, they use the love of God of all the great and glorious concepts of the Bible as the realm in which they bury their unbelief. Now that's what's happened. Now let's take the first one, the, the mystery. The Bible has a lot of mysteries in it. There's no doubt about it. A lot of things in the Bible are the mysteries. The mystery of godliness is how Christ dwells in you and me, and it's the hope of glory. The mystery of iniquity, how it works and aggravates. Nobody can understand it because your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The mystery of Babel, and this will be the great harlot church. This will be the great end time, mighty, powerful church toward which everything seems to be moving. There's mystery, all right. But there's one thing in the Bible that is not a mystery. And that is what Christ did on that cross. What Christ did on that cross was completed. It was fully finished. It was opened up so everything about it could be perfectly clearly understood. And it becomes good news. And we go out shouting and preaching and crying and telling everybody, listen to this. Your sins are pardoned. They're completely blotted out. There's nothing left that you need to do. It's all been accomplished. And listen to this story. It's the greatest news that's ever been proclaimed by anybody that's walked upon the face of this earth. Christ died for your sins. 
no mystery about it. Beloved, if there were a mystery about it, you and I wouldn't have the full answer and our minds would not be able to rest. There'd be uncertainty. There'd be a realm of doubt. There'd be an area here in which he said, well, I understand part of it, but I can't get it all yet. It's a little bit beyond me. It's mysterious. Beloved, if there's one thing in the Bible that God has made plain, it is the cross. If there's one thing in the Bible that God has made clear, it is the cross. If there's one thing that God wants his people to accept and then rest, it's the cross. When you believe that Christ died for your sins and paid the penalty for everything that you'd committed, which was an offense against him, and you're free, oh, beloved, it is the greatest report, it's the greatest news that anybody could ever possible proclaim. But wait a minute. That cross is a mystery to the ungodly. They don't understand it. That cross is a mystery. I point out this morning where the apostle went on to say, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. They scoff at it. They mock at it. They abuse it. It's something they can't understand. Utterly ridiculous that you can tell me that by the death of this one Christ, somehow or other, your sins are all forgiven. Oh, beloved, the ungodly scoff at it. They just can't possibly comprehend it. And it is a mystery. And if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. They don't understand the cross. And furthermore, I expounded to you this morning that great passage in which the Apostle Paul tells us, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he. They're foolishness to him. They are spiritually discerned. And beloved, it is only the Spirit of God which opens a man's eyes and lets him see Christ crucified in his stead and dying for his sins and God gives you the faith to believe that and when you believe it the scales fall off your eyes and you can see Jesus Christ as your redeemer beloved it's your soul's salvation it's the difference between hell and between heaven it's the difference between being a child of God and a child of the devil and everything depends upon your seeing the cross and understanding that on that cross Jesus died for you and all your sins were pardoned and everything was accomplished in your behalf. You know, when I look at this new confession and I open up this paragraph that I've just read to you and they say here that this reconciling act is a mystery. I want to tell you that the man who wrote this confession, the man who said that this thing was a mystery, the man who put that thing down, are blinded men to the gospel. That's all that's wrong with them. They're blinded. They never, never would have called it a mystery. They never would have looked at that cross and said, that thing's a mystery. They'd have taken that cross, and as the Westminster Confession of Faith outlines so beautifully, explains exactly what it means, exactly what God has done. And you and I sit here and we sing the transaction, the great transaction is done. 
And it has been completed. All right, now let's go to the next sentence in this confession. After they say this, which Scripture describes in various ways, it's called the sacrifice of a lamb. A shepherd's life given for his sheep. Here are the various things that it's called in the Scripture. Just imagine saying it's called. It's called in the Scripture. This mystery is called these things. And then they come on down a little further, and these are expressions of a truth which remains beyond the reach of all theories in the depths of God's love. Now, beloved, let's just take these things that they mention here in which they put over in the realm of theory in which they say express a mystery. Is there anything mysterious about the sacrifice of a lamb? Not if you know the Old Testament. Not if you read about the Passover lamb. Not if you read about the night they came out of Egypt. And here was the blood of the lamb which made the atonement. I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Is there anything mysterious about the idea that a, that a sacrifice could be made and that this sacrifice uh, satisfied the justice of all God? Almighty God? Not at all. When you understand who Jesus is, he was the lamb, he was sinless, he was perfect, he could die, he was in a position to do it, he was qualified to do it, and being qualified and being the position and being appointed to that task, he did it. And when he did it, it was finished. Nothing more to it. It's all settled. No mystery to that. I just preach it day in and day out. I preach it all my life. I'm doing everything I can to preach something which is not a mystery to us. It's the most blessed story that's ever been told. Tell me the old, old story. Repeat it. It never grows old. It was on that cross that Jesus died in my room instead and brought me back to the Father. Look at the next expression. If you'll turn to the chapter which I've developed on this cross, will you look at it? This whole section on the cross, I go into the careful detail of each one of these points. And I've marked it out there, about eight or nine of them as it relates. Is there anything mysterious about an atonement by a priest? Not when the priest is Jesus Christ. Not at all. Here's your Old Testament priest. The priest came in, made the sacrifice. Here's the high priest, went into the Holy of Holies. It's all explained there for you. And when all of that comes over and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, I don't say it's a mystery. I say thank God for it. I understand what he did in my stead. And having understood what he did in my stead, I'm not going to permit you to turn around and tell me it's beyond the reach of all theory. It's within the reach of my heart. It's in the reach of the understanding of my little mind down here. It's just right here. It's near me, and I believe it, and I love it, and I trust it. Now he goes on and said, Is there anything mysterious about his death being a ransom for a slave? Not at all when you're the slave, and when Jesus was the ransom. 
And what is a ransom? It's the payment of a price. In order to free that slave, you come and you pay the price. And when the price is paid, the slave is freed. And when Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin, I was freed. Nothing mysterious about it. Not even in the realm of theories. It, it took place. It happened. That's the message. That's the glorious truth that we proclaim. And I want to say to you tonight that the new confession has stripped the cross of its meaning. The new confession has taken away from the cross what God says that the cross did. They've taken it away. Look at the next one. Is there anything mysterious about the payment of a debt? Yes, we're in debt. We're under condemnation. How are you going to get out of it? Jesus comes along and says, I'll pay it for you. I'll take your place. Let me pay the debt. I'll let you out. So he pays the debt and you get out of it. Nothing mysterious about it. It's a transaction. It's a transaction. We were in debt and under condemnation. Jesus comes and says, I'll pay it for you and I'll let you out. And as soon as he pays it, we're free. And the fact that we have become free as a result of his grace tonight is proof that that debt was paid. Jesus Christ said, He that believeth on me is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Beloved, Jesus Christ came to this old world to do one thing, and that was die on that cross and pay that debt and to release you as a slave, and to die in your room instead. Beloved, there's not a thing wrong with that, and it's just as beautifully set forth in the Bible that we might understand. Now look at the next one. Is there anything wrong with vicarious satisfaction of the legal penalty? They put it in the realm of theory. Beloved, was there anything wrong when God took all the, your sins and mine, every one of them, laid them over on Jesus. The lamb, spotless one, vicariously he suffered. It wasn't his sin. It was my sin. It wasn't his condemnation. It was my condemnation. Anything mysterious about that? Praise God, it took place. Praise God, that's it. And every one of these expressions that you find in the Bible that describe the cross, every one of them are there that you might understand perfectly what Jesus did for you and understanding it, you can relax. You can rest. It's all finished. It's all done. Oh, these people who think that Christ has to be crucified every Sunday. They don't know the meaning of the cross. He died once and for all. The great high priest who's entered into the holiest of holies in the heaven. Well, you go on down. Is there anything mysterious about the victory over the powers of evil? Not when the victor was Jesus Christ. Beloved, he is the one who vanquished death. He's the one who vanquished Satan. He's the one who did it all. And when he went to the cross, there the great battle was raging. And there he died and paid the penalty. 
came up out of that tomb on the third day, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And I stand here tonight in this pulpit, and I tell you, it's a shame and a disgrace when any great church will call this thing a mystery, which is the message the church has had for 2,000 years. It's a shame and a disgrace when any great church will relegate these great statements of Scripture about the Lamb and about the vicarious sacrifice to the realm of theory and say it's so mysterious that no theories could possibly explain what the meaning of it is out there in the love of God. And they use a reference to the love of God to hide their rejection of what the Scripture says the meaning of the cross is. I told you tonight, if you came, I'd draw these lines for you, but here they are. But once you see it, you'll love that cross, you'll delight in that cross. And when anybody gets up and tells you it's a mystery, you'll say, my friend, you need to be born again. Then you'll find out it isn't a mystery. And somebody says to you, it's a theory. You said, I'm sorry, sir, you need to be born again. And then you'll understand that the virgin birth is not a theory, that the blood which atones is not a theory. It was real blood. It was the blood of the Lamb of God. And that blood made an atonement and brought us back to the Father. I say to you people in this sacred pulpit from which I'm preaching tonight, and I am a Presbyterian minister, when the great Presbyterian church writes a new confession and they leave the blood out of that confession and they relegate these great statements of scripture to the realm of mystery and talk about theory and try to hide it all out there somewhere in what they call the love of God, that great church has turned aside from the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's happened. And as I stand here in this pulpit tonight, in all the grace of God, I want to thank God from the bottom of my heart that I see it. That I see it. God's mercy has enabled my heart and my mind to see what they've done to the cross of Calvary. And then to do what I can and what we can in these last days to help save a precious remnant that will gather about that cross. And thank God that we don't rest our faith in mysteries. We don't rest our faith in theories. And we God in which we believe is a love that makes everything clear to us and plain. The love of God in which you and I believe doesn't obscure the gospel. It makes it plain and clear. The love of God in which you and I believe doesn't hide the message of redemption and cast doubt upon what Christ did and tell us it's a theory. No, beloved, the love of God which you and I believe in tells us that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And if you understand this tonight, if you're understanding what I'm saying to you tonight, if you appreciate this, if you can see it, I want to tell you one thing tonight's certain. If you understand the lines that I've drawn and how this thing cuts it so carefully here, you're saved. You've got the mind of Christ. You have the mind of the Scripture. 
You believe what the scriptures have told you. And that's gone into your soul and you become a child of God and it's no longer a mystery. Beloved, I thank God I'm not spending my life preaching a mystery. I surely thank God I'm not spending my life preaching something that you'll never understand. And I thank God I'm not in the pulpit preaching to you people that somewhere way back up there, somewhere, we'll keep on reaching, it's in the love of God, you'll never get there, but back there somewhere is what it means. I'm not spending my life preaching something that nobody can understand. I'm here to tell you that God sent his son down here and he wanted you to understand why he came. And he came for one purpose, and that was to die for your sins so you could become a child of God. And he came for one purpose, that he might open the tomb and open the grave, forever remove the mystery out of darkness and out of death. Open the whole thing up. The cross is clear. The tomb is empty. Our Savior's alive. Beloved, what are you waiting on? Come and accept him. He's yours. It's that simple. It's all here just to be proclaimed. And you folks can't do a greater thing in this community than to maintain this pulpit with a preacher in it who doesn't preach mysteries. He preaches salvation and regeneration by the power of God. And your redemption, beloved, is sure because of that cross. Now, there's two other things I think I'll bring in here. At the close of this chapter, I decided I'd bring in the Methodist because I wanted the world to see that this isn't just a Presbyterian problem. And uh, Bishop Oxnum wrote his little book called The Testament of Faith. Imagine writing a book calling it The Testament of Faith in which he denies the faith. But notice this. Oxnum said, I do not think, he's referring now to the sufferings of the cross, I do not think this was a part of a predetermined drama wherein the great playwright set down the lines to be repeated with a player, in this case Christ, moving here and there, as the director ordered. The end known from the beginning. It is almost blasphemous for someone to say that this is so, and that the cross was merely a part of the act. When he hung from that cross and cried, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Surely this was not a bit of a drama foreseen. It was the cry of a man well-nigh broken-hearted. End of quote. That's on page 46 of the book. But, beloved, these words that Oxnum quotes are from Psalm 22, a thousand years before Christ was born. And it was all ordained of God from the foundations of the world, before the whole purpose of creation, before everything was brought into being, God ordained that his son would come down and do this act of reconciliation by dying for you and me that we might be brought back to him. 
It is a drama. The earth is the stage on which this great drama of God's eternal purpose is being wrought out in Jesus Christ. Oxnum called it blasphemy. But read a little further. Concerning the vicarious sacrifice of Christ, Oxum said, I've never been able to carry the idea of justice to the place where someone else can vicariously pay for what I have done in order to clean the slate. So Oxum didn't believe that Christ vicariously died for his sins. Then we go on just a little further. Is God a being who must have the account squared by some death the sacrifice of a son even, that the individual account may be ruled off in two red lines, the balance in sin paid by a being who died long ago and left a great central account from which the deity may draw forever. Frankly, such doctrines do not help me, end of quote. And then I wrote just, Axtum is dead. And he is. Beloved, if that cross did not make an atonement for your sins, you're still in them. Christ said, if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And if you can't find in that cross the one who died for you, and you don't believe it, you're going to die with your own sins on you and you will pay the penalty because the wages of sin is death. Oh, beloved, tonight as I come to this cross, as I stand in the presence of it, and I see a great church with a mighty glorious history out of which I came and out of which our people came in generations past, I see them coming up to the cross. And they're saying, yes, we're going to talk about a cross. We're going to have a cross in the church. But let's rip it clean of all this foolishness that these people have added on to it through the years. Let's take the blood out of it. Let's take the vicarious sacrifice out of it. Let's take the idea that a priest is doing something there for somebody else. Let's trim all this stuff out of it. Call it series if you want to. But go way back over there in the love of God and tell people that that's where they'll find the meaning up there someday. Now that's what they've done. And it is a tragedy. John Calvin is turning somersaults in his grave tonight. He's been doing it ever since they started writing this thing. What in the world is happening? What in the world is taking place? What is happening that a great church would tamper with a cross? lay their hands on the cross and leave the blood out of it. All right, now the second thing I'll give you if you'll turn over to this chapter on the Auburn Affirmation. Let's see, that's back over here. Page 127. Way back in 1923, we were having these battles in the church, you know, over the five fundamental points. One of them was the Bible, and one of them was the cross. Sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. That's what it is. 
And along came these 1,293 preachers, and they signed this document called the Auburn Affirmation. It was called Auburn because it was written up in Auburn, New York. And 1,293 of them signed it. If you'll turn over to page 128, I have the quotations in which the Auburn Affirmation called these five great doctrines of the faith, the virgin birth, the blood atonement, you see, the infallible Bible, theories. And then said they were not the only theories allowable. There you have it. Theories, theories, not the only theories allowable. They even went so far as to say that the doctrine of inerrancy intended to enhance the authority of the Scripture, in fact, impairs their supreme authority. This doctrine of infallibility of the Bible makes the Bible more dangerous. We don't need that. Now, that was in 1923, 1924. It was an issue back in those days. Beloved, when they passed this new confession last year, Union Seminary in New York City has a paper called Christianity in Crisis. And on May the 17th, just a year ago, they had this to say. One might say, in fact, that the new confession goes down the line for the doctrinal paragraphs of the famous Auburn Affirmation, which oppose the exclusive assertion of fundamental tenets, what was a barely tolerated minority 40 years ago is now being proposed as the official doctrine of the church. End of one. Here's your great citadel of modernism in New York City, Union Seminary, telling us that what was just a little minority in the church, theories, yes, mysteries, the Auburn Affirmation, the blood, the scoffed at it, way back there 40 years ago, has so turned until today, that position becomes the official doctrinal position of the church. And I want to say to you people tonight, so many of you didn't know what was going on in these years. It's this history of this 20th century we're dealing with. But back in the days of the Auburn Affirmation, nobody said it was doctrine. They said it was just a matter of administration. Every time you had any fight, any struggle in the church, there was no doctrine, no doctrine, no doctrine. Just a question of administration in the church. That's all. But when they finally get the victory, when they've come down to the end of the road, and they now have a confession, which they wrote. They rise up and say, well, after all, it was doctrinal, always has been. And now the views of this little minority back there uh, have now become the official position of the church. There it is. Beloved, I am here tonight. We're a part of a great sequence of events of the 20th century. But if in 1924... When that Auburn affirmation was signed and these 1,300 preachers, 1,293 preachers said that the cross was a theory and they said that the virgin birth was a theory, if those men had been disciplined and removed from the church as they should have been, we would be in that great church tonight and it would be ours tonight. But the arguments of peace, love, Unity, brotherhood, led to this 
Pacifism. No action, no action, no action, no action, no action. And the little poison permeated the larger lump. A little leaven leavened the whole lump. Until in 1967, they can have a, a new creed. But thank God I'm still alive. And out of these years, I can write a book. And I can put this history together and tell a story so someone can see what's happened through these years of our lifetime. And now our problem is this. We have two problems tonight, two of them. First is we must preserve a church which will believe the Bible. And the only way you can preserve it is to preach the message, get people saved, get them into the house of God, make people understand that they belong to Christ, they should live for him, serve him, sacrifice, suffer for him. Let's go back to the first century and let's have the spirit of the martyrs of the early days of the church. We must preserve the Christian faith in our day. That's your duty. And that's mine. And I look at this great church in Collingswood tonight. I wished every town in this nation had a church like this. But God has brought this church here and God has raised this church up and God has spared this church for this hour for no other reason that we can be a witness, that we can give the truth. Beloved, I tell you tonight, no man will ever get to heaven unless he believed that Christ died for him. Never get there. No man will ever see the face of the Son of God unless he believes that the blood which was shed on the cross of Calvary cleanses him from all his sin. You'll never make it. And we're going to see a church filled with people calling themselves Christian who haven't even touched the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the day in which you're living. Now the second thing that I want to say, and I must say it tonight. I went to New York yesterday. And I saw those hordes. And I saw those waves of young people on 2nd Avenue, on 42nd Street. And I saw that multiplied crowd. And I've gotten two conclusions. One is, the newspapers played it down. They played down the crowds. I'm sure they did. And also, they didn't show the people, the communists, who were there. They didn't show all, they didn't show the picture of, of Lenin they carried down the street. They didn't show the picture of Castro they carried down the street. They didn't show the actual communist leadership and communist participation that was in it. My beloved, the same line in the church 40 years ago, which permitted these modernists and these unbelievers and these liberals to move in and gradually take over. That same line is now being used in our national life to destroy our country. And they're doing it. Page, page, page. Love, love, love. Same identical line. And as I looked out across my nation from New York yesterday and saw these thousands and thousands and these hordes of young people, high school students, college students, crying the communist line in my country. And then I looked out across the nation. They had a protest rally in Philadelphia. I read in the paper they had a thousand people there. American Legion. And it's the indifference 
the coalition of the indifferent plus the communists that are going to take us over and destroy us. I can still talk in this country as it relates to the church, but I won't belong when I won't be able to talk as it relates to the state. That's where this thing's going. And it's going that way very rapidly. And my problem is, what in the world can we do? Let's pray, let's work, let's give, let's sacrifice, let's evangelize. Let's lay aside everything that's foolish. Let's lay everything that's extraneous. Let's lay aside the weight that does so easily beset us. And let's run this race that's set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. It's no mystery to me, so I'm saved. There are no theories about it to me. I understand. And the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. How in the world anybody can stay in a church that writes a doctrine of the cross, leaves the blood out, scales the thing down, and trims off of it all of its meaning and says it's a mystery and it's a lot of theories anyhow. Somewhere out there in the love of God, you'll find out what that meaning is. No, beloved, the love of God told you what that meaning was from the very beginning when he said the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And from the very beginning, there has always been a message of salvation proclaimed on this earth. And God says he'll see that it is proclaimed until his son comes and takes us to be with himself. Now next Sunday night, I'm going into the church. Come and hear the one as we see this church build up. They're going to build a great church. And they're going to take the glory that belongs to Christ and they're going to put it in their church. They're going to take all the power that belongs to the scriptures, all the authority that belongs to this book. And they're going to say, belongs to us now. You line up like we want you to line up. You accept our program or else. And that's the way this thing's going. And beloved, I say to you people, so many of you listening to me tonight, please believe it, the blood. Please stay close to this book, the word. Please get yourself into a Bible-believing church and let's help build the church of Christ and let it be fair as the moon and clear as the sun and let her be terrible as an army with banners as we hold up the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, do you believe it? Do you believe that on that cross Jesus died for your sin? If you do, you're all right. You're secure. You're safe for all eternity. If you don't, you're lost. And if you believe it tonight, you'll be saved. Now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day when the cross is being preached. It's the day of salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank thee for this glorious cross. 
We thank Thee that it is not a mystery, it is not a theory, it is not something that men have tried to hide back in what they call the love of God. But Father, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We thank Thee that Thou hast told us who He is and what He did, and there's no mystery to us. He's ours forever. And now, Father, may we delight in all that he does for us. May we find his grace sufficient. May we find him speaking to us and saying that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And may we even sing, I came to the garden alone while the dew was still on the roses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me, I am his own. For Christ's sake, amen.